It's the Fun and O podcast with Dan Buskirk. On today's show, novelist Beth Hahn. I think for girls too, I thought about this idea when I was writing the book. I think there's a sense that when you're a child, you're allowed to be creative and free and express yourself and be smart and be clever and gymnastic or whatever you're good at. And then it's like when you hit puberty, it's, it's, there's a sense that you're being repurposed. I wanted to capture that sense of, that a girl has especially of being altered and changed for society. Welcome back to the Fun to Know podcast. I'm Dan Buskirk, and here we talk to artists, writers, and musicians about their lives and work. You can find the Fun to Know podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter, leave comments for us there, or email us at Podcast, always with the numeral two, at gmail.com. And if you've enjoyed the show, please take a moment to leave a review over at our page on iTunes. Just a couple of quick announcements before we get into today's interview. I'll be teaching a film appreciation class at Fleischer Arts Memorial beginning July, starting Thursday evening, July 12th, entitled The Big Tent, Political Campaigns on Film. With the Democratic Convention touching down among maximum drama, it seemed like a great time to revisit a handful of films featuring political campaigns, including Franklin Schaffner's 1964 adaption of Gore Vidal's play The Best Man, featuring Henry Fonda, Michael Ritchie's 1972 classic The Candidate, its screenplay by Eugene McCarthy speechwriter Jeremy Larner and starring Robert Redford, The War Room, D.A. Pennybacker's documentary on Bill Clinton's 1992 presidential campaign, and the 2005 Peabody Award-winning documentary Shirley Chisholm, Unbought and Unbossed, chronicling the 1972 campaign of the first woman and first African-American to launch a major party bid for the presidency. The films will be screened in Fleischer's Beautiful Sanctuary, and you can find out more about the class at Fleischer.org. That's F-L-E-I-S-H-E-R dot org. I'll also be hosting double bills at Andrew's Video Vault at the Rotunda on the University of Pennsylvania campus at 40th and Walnut in Philly every second Thursday night of the month. The next show is July 14th, and will feature a First Nations double bill. First is the 1968 film White Comanche, a film William Shatner made while on hiatus from Star Trek in which he plays, in the parlance of the day, half-breed twin brothers, one who is a gunslinger, the other, a man who after peyote-fueled visions believes himself to be the Comanche Messiah. Second on the bill is 1991's Clear Cut, a rare English language feature from Polish director Rizard Bajagski. Starring Dances with Wolves' Graham Greene and concerning a native spirit who leaves his environmental message on a logging exec's body. Once again, this will be at the Rotunda on 40th and Walnut in Philadelphia, Thursday, July 14th at 8 o'clock. Hope to see you out there. Now on to our conversation with Beth Hahn. Beth received her master's in writing from Sarah Lawrence and has had short fiction published in the Hawaii Review, the South Carolina Review, the Emerus Journal, and Necessary Fiction. Her debut novel, The Singing Bone, has been published through Reagan Arts in hardcover, ebook, and as an audiobook as well. The book is a sort of psychological thriller following Alice, who, along with three friends in 1979, fell under the spell of a con man named Jack Wick. A horrible act of violence occurred that changed the course of these people's lives, and the story continues 20 years later 
when true crime fans begin to search for an answer of what happened to Alice after these violent events. Alice is studying folklore when the documentary filmmaker Hans Loomis finds her, and her live's events echo the metamorphosing tale from the folk song The Twa Sisters. The details of that song have changed over the years, but it tells the tale of a sister killing a sister in jealousy. Later, the breastbone of the dead sister is made into a harp which sings out the story of the sister's murder. The novel The Singing Bone tilts back and forth between 1979 and 1999 as the details of the mystery come into focus, and it's almost too facile an illusion to make, but knowing that Beth is an accomplished knitter makes one wonder if she has a natural facility for spinning these myriad plot threads into such beautifully plotted work. Anyway, Beth came to the Fun to Know Kitchen studio to have a conversation, and this is what transpired. What I also like to do is start to interview people and then realize I haven't turned the machine on. Yeah. And then go, could we start again? Yeah. I'll try and think of a different way to say it. But <clears throat> Okay. Okay. Well, let's get started. Okay. Uh, I'm here with Beth Hahn, uh, the writer who uh, has her first book out, her debut, a wonderful, exquisitely wrought mystery uh, thriller called The Singing Bone, which incorporates folklore and 70s and cults and drugs and teenagers and all the things that uh, I love <laughs> love, Crazy. love exploring in, in, in fiction. And uh, it's a fascinating book that's gotten a lot of great attention. It's, it's out by, uh, it's out published by Reagan Arts, mm-hmm. Judith Reagan's imprint. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's also available on audiobook as well. Yes. What I understand. Yes. Um, uh, thanks so much for, for coming in, Beth. And Thank you. We're gonna Thank you for having me. We're going to start by, by reading part of the first chapter here, reading the first chapter. Yeah. So the book takes place in two time periods, uh, 1999, where the first chapter begins and Um, Then we go back in time to 1979. So I'll read uh, the first section. There's a filmmaker in the book whose name is Hans Loomis, and the book begins with him. Hans, August 1999. The package lies on the kitchen table. Hans Loomis keeps his back to it, preferring instead to linger at the window, absorbing the final heavy days of summer, those long evenings when the nature of time shifts into something dreamlike, suspended. He thinks about taking a walk in the park before opening the package. It isn't too hot for a walk, and he likes the smell of the cut grass on the great lawn. It's his habit to walk around the reservoir each evening, weather permitting. Instead, he takes a wine glass from the cupboard and pours himself the cold Pinot Grigio a guest brought the night before. The dinner party was a kind of celebration. He was beginning a new project. The package was in his study then, and the whole night he thought of it there, sitting at the center of his desk beneath the spotlight of a gooseneck lamp, just as it is now sitting in the center of the kitchen table. If he goes for a walk, the package will haunt him. He will not enjoy the walk, 
just as he did not entirely enjoy the dinner party. He thought he would open the package after his guests left, but he didn't. Hans turns away from the window and faces the package. It is wrapped with clear tape, wound over and over again, creating a thick plastic shield. There are drawings on the yellow envelope done in black marker. The drawings are of snakes, of birds, of skulls and flowers. They betray a tattooist skilling graphics. He takes a pair of scissors from a drawer and sits at the table, setting his sweating glass down on a square of linen napkin. He folds his hands and clears his throat as if about to speak. The package feels hostile, but maybe it's because he knows who sent it and has a sense of what's inside. He pulls the package towards him. In a space bracketed by curving snakes, he sees his name, the post office box number, New York, New York. Hans doesn't want to rip the envelope's drawings, so he cuts carefully across the top. He peers inside, opening the envelope with his thumb and forefinger. It's a stack of papers. The pages are of different sizes and loosely held together with a black ribbon. He takes them out, trying to keep the loose cuttings and drawings from scattering, but he sees what is going to happen and goes to his study, finds an empty manuscript box and brings it back. He places the pages in the box. He puts the lid on and breathes. He feels as if there's something alive in the box, a caught animal, a wild bird. He takes a sip of wine, sets the glass down, and then opens the box again. It's really only 10 pages, maybe 12. It's not enough to be called a book, but it's more than a letter. There is a drawing of a tree, thick and knotted, done in the same kind of black marker as the drawings on the envelope, but the tree is drawn on Xeroxes of newspaper articles. He sees Alice Pearson's face. She has her arm around someone, but a branch of the tree obscures the other half of the photo. Near the top branches of the tree, he sees Molly Malloy and Jason Stover. He can barely make their features out, but he knows it's them. There are drawings of black birds surrounding the tree. Trina Malik is drawn with torn wings, and Allegra Ramos is stippled in a black dress, her hair curling into the lines of the tree's roots. The roots are a tangled mass, with a line above indicating the earth. The roots are linked to the arc of the black birds overhead. At the very base of the drawing, Hans reads, Sweetheart, the dream is not ended. The dream is not ended. The line is familiar, but Hans can't place it. Dear Mr. Loomis, the letter begins, may I call you Hans? We are both men of the world. You wrote to me wanting to know more about me, about what happened. These pages are manifestations and ideas. What happened is a long time ago, and my memory is not entirely dependable, though some people's are worse. There are forces at work. You writing to me is one more sign that soon I will walk under the sky. I tried to write you a letter, only a letter the kind regular people write, but I kept going. I am not regular. Hans looks at the signature at the bottom of the drawing, Jack Wick, a flourish of black ink. When Hans looks up again, it is almost dark outside. He remembers his walk. He returns to the pages, forgetting it again. At midnight, he puts the lid on the box and stands, stretching. He's hungry. 
Francis left him something to eat in the refrigerator, but he thinks of the all-night deli on Broadway. He needs to be outside, to feel his legs move freely, to walk for a block or two past the park, where he can smell summer leaves, the damp of the ground. Hans thinks of his walk around the reservoir and wishes it weren't too late to take it. He likes to think of the path of the water, the way it travels south from the watershed upstate. He imagines the water running in thick curving lines like the drawings of the tree's roots, cutting through stone and spilling over the earth. And then he reverses the flow of water, letting his imagination take over, and he sees the water racing north, uphill, towards the Catskills, weaving around towns beneath bridges, rushing over stones and cutting through trees, until it lands at the feet of Alice Pearson, who stands on the shore looking out at the place where the water meets the sky. So you bring together uh, pretty masterfully in the first chapter uh, a lot of ideas that, that get explored throughout the book of, of narratives and uh, how they twist and turn and mm-hmm. how uh, every every narrator has their own uh, description of the events. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Tell me, tell me about the uh, what were the the kernels of inspiration that first got you putting the story together. Well, I left the city and left New left New York City in um, 2013, and I moved to a house that is backs up to a reservoir and trees. And in the summer, there are you're not supposed to swim in the reservoir because it's watershed property it belongs to New York City it's part of their it's part of their drinking water system um, but I would always see kids cutting through the trees in my neighborhood and I knew they were going swimming they had towels and I started thinking about what that would have been like to grow up in a place in a place like that in a place like my neighborhood and um, and also just kind of being out of the city and suddenly being in a space that was quiet, um, I think there was a certain fear I had after, I lived in Philadelphia for many years, and then I, after that I lived in New York City. So moving out to a place where there were woods and reservoirs, and at night it's completely dark, I was, I was a little bit frightened. <laughs> what lives in that <laughs> Yeah, dark? well I always have the sense that the, you know, the city sort of gets a bad rap for having things, crime. and But then I would think to myself, but you know what? The really scary people live out in the suburbs <laughs> and live outside of the city. So that is a bit where Jack Wick comes from, too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the the story itself, uh, the, I guess would say lead character, Alice. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so many characters who, who, who sort of uh, take center stage. But she's a, a folklorist who mm-hmm. is following uh, the... Uh, trajectory of, of folk tunes and, and, mm-hmm. and how their narratives change. And there's also the filmmaker, who, who Hans, who you introduced there, who mm-hmm. is a, a filmmaker who is looking to find narratives within the uh, stories he's covering, the, the true stories. And then there's Jack Wick, who's, mm-hmm. uh, whose narrative seems to engulf everybody who he pulls into his, his orbit, especially the, the group of young people uh, mm-hmm. uh, whose these stories uh, come around. So, yeah. so you you take on this this uh, very big job. How did how did you get to the real mapping together of the the trajectory of the story? Well, I was very inspired by when I'm. I love folklore, and I was thinking about the way ballads change and tales change, and they take on new elements and shift, and 
And I think the way we tell stories is that's how we tell stories. We could have done the same thing or been in the same place, but you would tell the story differently than I would tell the story. And then we wouldn't be sure. Maybe you would remember something I didn't remember. And, and I would say, no, it didn't happen that way. It happened this way. So the singing bone is the story of um, a girl, Alice Pearson, and her friends who in 1979 get involved with this messianic, um, sociopathic, cult-type cult leader who is a con man. And they end up moving in with him. And there's a crime. Something, something terrible happens that I won't reveal. Well, that's, uh, the, the novel leaves that uh, undisclosed for, for, for a good part. Yeah, until close to the end. Um, and then in 1999, Alice has changed her name, and she is a folklore professor researching this ballad, The Trois Sisters. Um, and it's the advent of the Internet. So her life her the identity the new identity she's created for herself is coming undone so people are trying are starting to come together and figure out who she is and there's also this documentary filmmaker Hans Loomis who's curious about the story and wants to make a movie about it so he's also tracking Alice down so she's as an adult threatened by all of these factors and um it's making her to uh, confront what didn't yes, really Yes, she has to confront her. She has to confront her sordid past. Yeah. <laughs> so, so uh, you, did you set it in the 70s uh, looking to, you know, summon this sort of uh, sense of, of danger that was around at that time? I did. I mean, I was really interested in both time periods. So the 70s, because I, I'm... I grew up in the 70s and the 80s, and there was always this sort of threat of a cult. Like, um, you know, we, we were familiar with the Manson murders were very present still. And I saw the, the, Mooney, the Mooney wedding picture in the newspaper and was shocked by that. And, of course, Guiana and Jim Jones happened at that time. So there was it was this idea that you had to be, especially if you were a young woman, you had to be very careful. There was this threat of becoming part of a group that could completely change your life and, you know, you'd end up a criminal. Or Separated from your separated, family. Yeah, you, you would have to be deprogrammed. Yeah. <laughs> there would be some deprogramming going on. But it, you also, uh, it's a coming of age and a coming of innocence as well. In, yeah, in, in there's an era a lots of innocence you, there. You're roughly mm -hmm. the same age as those characters, I would mm -hmm. imagine. Mm -hmm. I also had this curiosity about the coming of age novel. So it's a bit of, it's a bit of that, too, the loss of innocence that Alice's, Alice experiences when she moves in with this, with this man, Jack Wick, who likes everyone to call him Mr. Wick. <laughs> so. so open my
so many of these stories when they're talking about cults, they really focus on the the center of the cult, and you, you had to, you know, bring to life the, this man mm-hmm. Jack Wick. And uh, mm-hmm. tell me, tell me about uh, the research you did and the, and the and the things that you know went into crafting uh, such a such a controlling, you know, somewhat maniacal man. I did a lot of research, so I read a lot about different cult leaders. I read about, of course, Charles Manson. I read about Jim Jones and I read about L. Ron Hubbard. So I, I read, and they all seem to have sort of similar stories. There's this, there's this mystery about their past. The past for them keeps shifting. It's, they had, they don't have history the way that, the way that people, maybe your friends or your family, we, we all sort of know each other's history and their history will change according to who they're, talking to or what they want um, one thing becomes more important and we all do that I guess a little bit but there there's also the the rebirth story and there's a rebirth story of Jack Wick in the book where they have a major revelation and they realize that they are put on the earth to to convey some powerful truth to people so. uh, have had you ever been attracted to those sort of rebirth ideas or or the sort of new agey sort of uh uh template that sort of comes through uh in, in this in the stories he tells yeah i have i've been interested in that and also i think i'm much more curious about people who are devoted to it and how that happens like how someone can suspend suspend reality and just follows just blindly follow someone and their their teachings I, I really appreciate it in your novel that you didn't lay a lot of sort of obvious psychological groundwork on mm-hmm. these people that would mm-hmm. point to something different about them that would make them susceptible to this yeah that uh, how did how did you uh, in your own mind is there is there something about Alice's personality that you think made her particularly susceptible to uh, joining a cult well, I think she's she's at an age. She's seventeen in the in the novel in nineteen seventy nine, and she's she's in an age where the world suddenly opens up in this in this different way. So you might fall in love when you're seventeen, or you might realize what your passions are when you're seventeen. Those years can be very formative. So um, she met someone that we would all hope we wouldn't meet when we were 17 and <laughs> fall in love with. So I think that is her main, is her age, and that she's she's open and curious about the world. Also the dangers she, of lover in there as well. Yeah. I wanted my characters to have more authority um, and then the claiming of authority at the end of the book. So I wanted I wanted them to have authority because we often think of women especially who get involved with cults or cult leaders as being a sort of a shell of a person and that they have no autonomy and they don't they're not responsible for their actions and I think that's that's a little bit dangerous I think that we're all making choices all the time so I thought about it as if she were just simply getting involved with a man she falls in love with a man she falls in love with an idea and then she begins to fall out of love with the man, with the idea, but by that time it's such a sort of closed environment where she can't quite, she doesn't see herself functioning anymore outside of it. She feels dependent on it. 
then in the end of the book, so the love relationship goes bad, and then the end of the book, I wanted her to come out of it and reclaim her life and her herself. Tell me about the the characters that she she comes into this cult with, because it's yeah. a, it's really about a. I think it was a trio of, of, of girlfriends, but there's also a there's also Stover, there's yeah, also who's Stover the boy. Yeah. So they all they've all known each other since they were little and they live their neighbors. They live close to each other. Her friends are Molly and Trina and Stover. And they all Trina is the one who she first gets involved with Lee, who is Mr. Wick's sort of sidekick, evil sidekick. (laughs) So there's Molly, Molly Malloy, which the, the name itself sounds like it comes from a from a ballad. It does. I yeah. know it's a kind of a ballad name. Yeah, and she's a she's a sweet sort of Alice's sweet friend who's who's always been small for her age, and Alice feels protective of her. Uh-huh. Um, and she starts to see another side to Molly that she she hadn't anticipated. And then there's Trina, who is the one who gets them sort of involved, and in. she's a big risk taker. So she has uh, family issues, family problems. So her parents think she's very bad and they want to send her to live with her grandmother. So she feels a bit forced out of her house. Uh-huh. So they all have their reasons for for getting involved and staying together as a group and moving in with Mr. Wick. Mr. Wick. <laughs> <laughs> what can you say about Mr. Wick? I keep coming back to Mr. Wick. <laughs> yeah. uh, as, as the story goes on, you, you definitely leave a, a, a enough room to question uh, uh, what people's perspective on the on these events are, and mm-hmm. I, I was wondering if, if there is a side of uh, Jack Wick that you find somewhat sympathetic, or, or uh, you know, to get into his mind. Yeah, well, I'm fascinated by him and by by that kind of character in general, and how do you create a character like that without making them completely letting the reader feel like why would anyone have anything to do with this man? Right. Because why would why would you have anything to do with Mr. Wick? But so he has a charm. You, you see why I wanted people to understand why Alice gets involved with him and why they trust him and why they go along with him, because he's charismatic. He pays a lot of attention to them. Yeah. He kind of fills whatever role they seem to be missing in their lives. So for for Alice, he's he's her lover molly he's also a lover and for trina he provides some sort of adult figure and for stover also he provides a kind of father figure i think so he gives them whatever they need is it is it purely uh selfish for him or does he see himself as a hero in his own narrative I think in some he, way? he sees himself as a hero yeah he he sees himself as um someone who can change the world and shape the world and he, he sees himself as this grandiose figure in history who sort of knows everyone and that, um, is a part of all events that are important. So he's doing, for, for him, I mean, I think he's a, he's, act, he's a con man, but he also feels like he's doing them all a great service by being in their lives. He sees himself as a rescuer. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and as the story goes on, as uh, you know, often it's the story of cults. There's there's sort of sex and and drugs involved. Why? I mean, why else would people get involved with cults? <laughs> there are parties. <laughs> often, when I look at some behavior, that like this behavior isn't explainable at all. But like, if somebody was doing a lot of drugs during yeah, it, yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. Then it becomes 
Yeah, exactly. A, a, more, a bit more understandable. Yeah. There, there's a there's a conservatism that, that can come into these mm-hmm. these sort of stories mm-hmm. about the, the dangers of of sex and the, the dangers of sort of mm-hmm. uh, moving away from societal ideals in any way. Right. And and yet I don't think that it, it doesn't come down that hard on those those, those points. Yeah, that it I makes didn't me want it that, to. Yeah, that you yeah. have a burning issue with with sex yeah. and drugs necessarily. <laughs> I don't. I don't really. No, <laughs> no burning issues. But um. I'm I'm I've always been around alternative cultures, yeah. so I'm I'm right now I'm a yoga teacher as well as a writer, and I'm so curious about the way people can get swept up in movements and and begin to believe in something. And I don't feel like they've necessarily transgressed anything. Often I I think they're living out a um, a particular moment in their lives, a particular moment in their history, and maybe they'll move on from it probably. So for me, it wasn't this tale of, um, and I know a lot of genre novels are conservative, have the structure of, well, don't, if, if you do transgress this boundary, these bad things will happen to you. And there is some of that in the novel, because whenever you transgress societal boundaries, there is some danger. There's a price but, to but pay somewhere. There is, a, but often we can recover from, <laughs> from the price we paid, right? Um, <laughs> So there's no, I didn't want to create a sense of punishment in the book. I didn't want to punish, I'm not interested in punishing my characters or being mean to my characters or, or saying that this is, I don't want to, I don't want to create a moral novel. With writing sex scenes, did you, did you ponder on how, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, sensual to, to make them or? Yes. If those, you know, and there is an award for writing the worst. <laughs> <laughs> there is. I don't remember what it's called, but there's a there's an award for writing the worst sex scene, and I just you know I I don't know if I would be honored or or worried if I somehow were nominated for this award, but I tried to add just enough so the reader knows, but the reader isn't overwhelmed. By <laughs> is overwhelmed the word you're looking like, for? Ew. <laughs> I don't want to read this book anymore. <laughs> So, but just so it's convincing enough, I always think if you find the right detail in writing, you don't really need a lot. You don't need a lot of information. And it's you something need that's, the right detail. And it's something that's it's more about, it, it's present a lot. Mm-hmm. It seems like the, the sex is intertwined with their activities a and lot. If I and didn't, it seems to be going on. And if I didn't on. include it, yeah. I don't know how convincing any of it would be. <laughs> I mean, that's part of it. I mean, it's very powerful, especially at that age. There was an old man in the north country Bow down, bow down There was an old man in the north country The bows they bend to me There was an old man in the north country He had daughters one, two, three Love will be true, true to my love Love will be true to you There was a young man came courting there Bow down, bow down There was a young man came courting there Bows they bend to me There was a young man came courting there He did choose the youngest fair Love will be true, true to my love Love will be true to you He gave to the youngest a gay gold ring Bow 
he gave to the youngest a gay gold ring. Vows they bend to me. He gave to the youngest a gay gold ring and to the oldest not a single thing. Love will be true, true to my love. Love will be true to you. Sister, oh sister, let's walk the seashore. Bow down, bow down. Sister, oh sister, let's walk the seashore. The boughs they bend to me. Sister, oh sister, let's walk the seashore to see the ships come sailing o'er. Love will be true, true to my love. Love will be true to you. They are walking along on yonder sea brim. Bow down, bow down. They were walking along on yonder sea brim. Bows they bend to me. They were walking along on yonder sea brim when the oldest shoved the youngest in. Love will be true, true to my love. Love will be true to you. As the story goes on, there's a there's a character who, who. Uh, recognizably sort of loses her mind and mm-hmm. falls into being sort of a, an unreliable narrator onto yeah. the events. Um, tell me about the decisions that made it, went into incorporating uh, that, str- that, that thread into this, this story. So I, one of the seeds of writing the novel was a question I had was if somebody could commit a crime and really have no recollection of it. And I thought, isn't that fascinating that, some, that that seems to happen? Or does it? How are people just making up that they can't remember? And how how would the truth ever come out? And my answer to that was somebody else would have to witness it, who knew what the truth was. So the character who is who disconnects from reality also commits a crime. But I thought, how how would she not remember? And she'd have to disassociate. She'd have to, in some way not trust reality anymore, which seemed really accurate for a cult as well. So she starts to believe that she's in a play. So whatever is happening, she starts to believe there's act one, and wow, isn't it going on for a long time? Are we in act two yet? And at this point, she's been asked to take on a bunch of different roles and yeah. take on a bunch of different realities. Yeah, so, the fact so a that lot she of, she's already been, emo- she's been emotionally traumatized at this point. And... There are two paths at this point. One is to leave the group and one is to disassociate as far as I was concerned. And she wasn't going to leave the group because all of her friends were there and she felt safe in some way. So yeah, she some there's a precipitating event and then she disconnects from reality. And she has a theater background, so I thought, oh, she'll, she'll start to just think she's in a play. She'll start to believe that. And so there's a lot of language in the novel, like, I need to, you know... I need to put a marker down so I know where you were standing. And, I'm, and then she, she keeps trying to figure out which character she is and which, which point in the play there. That she doesn't, when is the play going to end? At some point, it sort of tends toward almost being humorous. Her, yeah, uh, there's black humor. There. I mean, it was, it was fun to write. I think, I think I sort of spent 
at some point I had to cut back on, I had to edit out a lot of play parts because I'd had so much fun writing them <laughs> that they were just, they, they outweighed outweighed the novel in a, in a weird way. So I had to, I had to force myself to edit a lot of the play parts out, but I really enjoyed writing that. Yeah, and it seemed so right for her character, too, that she would have started to believe that. And then I actually read an essay in the New York Times about um, a tra- somebody who had had a traumatic event, and he had, he had started to believe he was in a play. So I thought, oh, it does happen. <laughs> I didn't completely make that up. <laughs> Lingering over the, uh, the novel is this violent act that, that happened, which, mm-hmm. is, uh, which is sort of undiscussed for a long time. How did you, how did you de- decide on the, the sort of the scope of this violence? Well, it had to lead up to this event, and I wondered yeah. about uh, there must have been a lot of decisions on what to make uh, that event that it was going to be worthy of this mystery that went through right. the whole thing. Right. I'm, I'm, well, I think that when something violent happens in our lives, when I was in Philadelphia, there were several people who were murdered, um, and I I didn't know them well. But I was around people who knew them well. And so there's a sense of violence spiraling out and the way it spirals out into a community and creates fear and sorrow and affects people forever. I mean, it's not anything we forget about. So it occurred to me when, these, when one of these people were ki- was killed that there was, um, there was a sense of a shift in, in my own reality um, and about how safe I felt in the world, I guess. And so I started thinking about that, like the spiral of violence and the way it impacts people farther and farther out than the people who meet me who didn't know this person are affected by my book or affected by somebody else who knew this person um, in a different way. So it's just a single act, I think, can really change and shape our lives, not necessarily for the better at all. Yeah. So I've always been fascinated by that. I think, in a way, that's what the book is is mostly about, and that the the idea that folklore and, and the ballad does the same thing. It tells the same violent story over and over again to different people, and we all remember the story in a slightly different way. So yeah. that I think has a lot to do with the book. That, med- that sort of meditation on the violent act and how it affects all the people. It affects the, the peripheral characters, the main characters. It just affects people differently. Violence can often be sort of presented as a, as a definitive act. Mm. And, and uh, your, uh, your book, at the end, it really strays away from, uh, from, from having to, you know, definitive action uh, come a course from it. The, the, what, what comes after the violence is, is kind of diffused and uh, mm-hmm. continuing and ongoing. Uh, tell me about writing ends, you know, writing an end to the story. What did you want to leave open at the, you know, sort of at the end, or, or, or how did you want to uh, conclude? <laughs> what was going to be the concluding note? Well, I wanted the reader to decide who was guilty and who was innocent. Yeah. And if there is, even is such a thing as as pure guilt and pure innocence. So for me, that was. And that's hard to do. How do you do that in a novel? Because it, to point at one character and say it's absolutely their fault would seem, to me, it seems like it would be a little bit cleaner than 
leaving the reader with the question. Yeah, and their lives their lives go on sort of uh, after yeah. the end of this uh, this book. Have yeah. you? There's some there 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 are few lives that don't go on. Yeah. But the ones that do go on um, are shaped by the violent act. Yeah. Yeah. Have you, would you consider a sequel ever writing to this book? <sighs> You know, I mean, I could totally get back into <laughs> I think that some people, you know, in this novel, my, I might want to take care of them at some point for good. <laughs> so I sort of let the let the wicked, you know, continue on as well as the good. I think that's what I was getting at. Yeah. There's sort of like you, you, you don't come. You're not the executioner at the end giving the ultimate punishment. To no, any of these, no. These I mean, where is the punishment for I? That was my question with the. With a lot of with for Alice with a lot of the book, should she be punished? How responsible is she? Yeah. And then with Mister Wick, it's the same thing. It's kind of that question of if he wasn't there, how responsible is he? Yeah. So there's a lot more emotional responsibility and psychological responsibility than crime and punishment. So for Alice, she's I want her to resolve and go on and. Who knows with Mr. Wick? Yeah. <laughs> He'll just continue being bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting that uh, you, the, the story, you know, that hangs over all cult stories so much Charles Manson, like mm-hmm. it ends with him, you know, a man who wasn't present at those murders. Yeah. Continuing on and uh, having this odd mm-hmm. thwarted life that, you know, pokes out every once in a while. At yeah. Us. Well, there's a the subculture, the online subculture that's um, that loves Mr. Wick. They, they call themselves the Wiki in Society. And so they're his kind of fan club. Because that uh-huh. also fascinates me that that people like Charles Manson still have followers, that there there are people who, who want to marry prisoners who were convicted of <laughs> he terrible He recently crimes. had that woman in his young 20s. Yeah, who, was... who just married Charles Manson. I mean, what? <laughs> <laughs> I would have to guess her parents are very disappointed. I would have to. <laughs> you know, they probably had bigger that's, dreams. That's the they last probably, thing yeah. we wanted to happen. I hope my daughter grows up to marry Charles Manson. <laughs> no, probably not. There's the, the, the ghoulishness of studying these things. Yeah, there is. A, there is. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, even as a kid, I remember, you know, people raising their eyebrow at, at mm. me, you know, reading Helter Skelter. From, yeah, from, well, it's and, a bit and, taboo. Yeah. Yeah, and I remember when I was in graduate school, I tried several times to write about violence and was pushed away from it a little bit because it's not it's not something we deal with a ton in literary in the genre literary fiction. Yeah. So, if you are someone who loves words and language um and writes, wants to write a beautiful book but you happen to want to write about cult leaders and violence how do you resolve that for yourself is is there a gender element in that as well as a a woman writer writing about this violence there are all kinds of gender elements (laughs) (laughs) probably i don't know i mean a lot of women are crime writers I mean, there's some great women crime writers. Like, Patricia Highsmith was amazing, you know. Yeah, the, the, yeah. the height. Yeah. I, I did notice that among the readings you did. Shirley one, Jackson. One of the readings you did was yeah. talking about, you know, the feminine voice and, and, and thrillers and everything. Uh-huh. Did, did you get to the bottom of that subject? Uh, where was I? Where did I? I think this was, was this Astoria you read? You were being interviewed. I just saw that you were interviewed by uh, a woman writer. Kara Hoffman. Kara Hoffman. Yeah. And, and uh, among the subjects that were going to be discussed was 
something about the feminine voice, according to this, you know, uh, oh, cor- teaser oh, I, I didn't read know about that. going into We're going to talk about the feminine voice and in crime writing. <laughs> if you could just sum up what you came <laughs> up with. <laughs> probably, <laughs> that was probably nothing, because I didn't know we were going to talk about it. Um, no, it is a really interesting question. And I think, I mean, I, I come at writing from such a different angle. I was trained as an artist, and I... I'm, I was never, I never, I don't know, I didn't study, I studied, I was a minor in English literature, but I never knew from an early age, like, I want to write novels. I thought I would be an artist. And I think that I come at things a little bit sideways. What was the, what was the age in which you did start to take yourself seriously as a writer? Not until I was 30, I would say. Really? Yeah. yeah. So I was about 30 when I wrote my for, first short story, and I thought, how how do people do this? And it was because it's a puzzle. When you start, you can't figure out how, what elements should go where and how a character gets from point A to point B. And you have to go back and look at all the books you love because I was always a huge reader. Um, so I went back and looked at books that I, that I love. And what was that first short story about? I don't even, I think it was about a girl who goes to a carnival and she, there's something about a boy and a ride and I don't really remember much else about it but I remember being completely confused as to how I would get her on the ride or how she would see her friends from a distance these little things when you're writing fiction suddenly seem like well how do people like magic how do people do that so there's that I wanted to but I really wanted to tell stories too so I wanted to master it and I've always loved language and I love music so there's a musicality about language that I find thrilling. And um, so I think I, I think I came at writing from just a, a little bit of a different place then, uh-huh. than a lot of novelists. Maybe, that, maybe I'm just imagining that. We're all slightly different. So when people tell me, or when I, when I found out in graduate school that really, you know, Maybe we want to shy away from the sex scene or we want to shy away from showing the violent act. So I was surprised. I was like, oh, we do. We want to. We don't want to write. A, why? That happens in life. But I have the story I want to tell, you know. So well, it, it's I mean, you, you, you uh, come across as a very sort of. So uh, what's the. As, uh, no. You don't. <laughs> <laughs> you don't come across as a very bloody, you know. <laughs> I don't. No, I don't. You would be. Pe- I've surprised. I'm sure I've surprised several people. You have very nice novel. manners and a very well, pleasant voice, you. and you know, it didn't seem like you know yeah. uh, that the murder is on your mind necessarily. Right. Well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about those early short stories, though. Tell me about when the when you first started to sort of gear up as a, a writer. You ended up going back to school to Sarah Lawrence. I went to yeah. I did my MFA at Sarah Lawrence. And that was that where the writing got serious. Yeah, well, before that, I mean, I, I think when people go to graduate school, they've already when they go to get their MFAs, they've already been writing for some time. And I would hope. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I mean, we sort of say about oh, but you can't teach anybody how to write, but. 
it's because they're already writers yeah. and they want to go and have time to, <laughs> to work on their craft. So, yeah. So I, I went um, to Sarah Lawrence and I wrote a book of short stories for my thesis assignment. And it was great because all the only thing I was doing while I was there was reading and writing. And I had not had time to do anything like that before. Yeah. So I was just investigating. Were they themed together, the, this book of short stories you wrote? Um, yeah. Some of them. I was really, I mean, I was really interested in learning how to create a mood or a feeling in writing. Um, so they weren't action-packed stories. They were quiet stories. They were pretty quiet, I think. And That's some a, of them have been published, but the ones that had a bit more plot and structure were published. Yeah, Your book has been singled out for being particularly moody. And, uh, it's a moody book. <laughs> I mean, I do appreciate, you know, mood and nuance. And, and I think that also goes back to being trained as an artist. So yeah. looking and loving movies to just this this idea of looking and paying attention you know and when you look at it when you look at a painting what do you if it's if it's like a Robert Ryman if it's a white painting I mean you start to look at it and there's so much going on that you didn't see at first so I think I think that being trained to look I almost imagine it as putting down the the first coat of you know sort of the background or the sky or whatever you're painting you know yeah and I like to think um I like to think of things like stills in movies sometimes when I'm writing. So I think of like a camera moving through a room or, you know, there's scenes where they're all sitting at a round table together. And I kind of like, I'm a bit like the camera moving around the room. Well, who are the filmmakers who have inspired you over the years? <laughs> That's a hard question. I mean, I think some of those 70s filmmakers that we were talking about, definitely. I mean, I loved... One of my favorite movies is mentioned in the book, The Conversation. That's sure. one of my favorite movies. Um, and this, I love the Body Snatcher movies. Those are also mentioned. Yeah, the you first mentioned two. Yeah, the yeah. Fir- that's in the movie. I mean, that's in the novel. You mentioned uh, Donald Sutherland's uh, horrible yeah. noise that, that he makes at the end. The horrible noise that he of... makes at the end, where he points and yeah. he just opens his mouth and makes that noise. Yeah, one <laughs> of the one of the characters ima- imagines that happening, and that had such a big impact on me when I saw it. Um, and then later filmmakers. I could see the connection to Twin Peaks and David Lynch. Yeah. Oh, I love David Lynch. Yeah. I do. And, and that was also uh, yeah. a story of something that, that happened formative. that you don't quite yeah. know and teenagers in trouble. Yeah, definitely. a twi- I loved Twin Peaks. I watched it. Do you remember a part in your life where you felt that leadable or that vulnerable? or? I mean, I think we all are. Sure. I Especially if re- when, when we first venture... Even even when we're still at home, I think teenage years are really, you are vulnerable. I mean, the world is changing. The world is, your role in the world is changing. Yeah. 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 And Hopefully I think for, trying out new ideas. And yeah. I think for girls, too, I thought about this idea when I was writing the book. I think there's a sense that when you're a child, when you're a girl, you're, um, you're allowed to be creative and free and express yourself and be smart and be clever and gymnastic or whatever you're good at um and then it's like when you hit when you hit puberty it's it's, there's a sense that you're being repurposed which is really confusing yeah yeah and uh i think 
if we see that from the outside, it looks like something else. Like I think for I think for a girl, that sense of of having having her almost her whole person being repurposed for the um, for the pleasure of society. Like what will she wear? What is she, what does she grow up to look like? What kind yeah. of shape does she have i've or, heard a woman talk about like there was a point when their father's friends started talking to them differently. yeah it's, it's very strange i mean it's and it's frightening yeah. really i mean it's exciting but it's it's also it makes you a little like what's going on so i think there's the, i wanted to capture that sense that there that a girl has especially of, of being altered and changed for society which isn't really I mean, I, I think it's lucky if no, if someone doesn't go through that. If they're, if they have a core that strong, that they don't have that sense of sort of being swept into this new and strange world. If they yeah. can hold on to that smart, funny girl that they that they knew at ten and take that into thirteen and sixteen, and you know, and never have to go through that sense. And we can we keep it to some. It's not like you totally change, but there is a there is a sense of of the world is the world expects something else from you i really remember being very i don't know if boys go through that do they i don't think no not i don't think in the same way but i remember as a as a a middle school kid Mm. uh, being very aware of this dynamic that was never discussed of like yeah it's never talked about young girls uh having their first serious boyfriend uh-huh. And things probably get really sexual, from what I understand. Yeah, there's suddenly a lot of pressure. And then, and yeah. then uh, the the romance is over, and I just remember these girls getting very cold and and not bubbly, and really uh, sort of losing uh-huh. some sort of uh, some sort of. Yeah, there's like a tamping. Uh, there's a tamping yeah. down of of the girl. I think, yeah, and, and for me, yeah. I was I, for, it was like watching all my friends' yeah. little sisters like turning into sort of like sadder, quieter, mopier kind of yeah. characters. Yeah, I think that's when, I think that that's kind of that moment when when the, the expectation for you changes. Yeah. What you'll be in the world and what you'll do. And, you know, I hope, I hope it's, ch- I hope it's changed. I hope it's different now for girls. Yeah. But there's an awful lot of pressure on girls now that even when I was when I was growing up, we didn't have Instagram. We didn't have constant selfies or um, how many friends, you know, we had how many friends do you have in school? But it wasn't like how many followers do you have? How hot can you look? You know, yeah, we didn't have that. So my my son is you know 11 and he's Mm -hmm. mourning the end of uh, the area when he could talk to girls and nobody would make a big deal about it like right. he still wants to have a lot of female friends right. i think but like now, his friends now it's really... like oh you have a crush on so and so yeah he's i mean only yeah. a year ago he spent the night at his like girlfriend's house and, right you know and slept yeah. in the same room with her sister and stuff and right now that that's gone he's not really ready for that to be yeah. gone yeah yeah and that why should he be ready for that i mean, I mean you should get to keep his friends yeah. we should all get to yeah. keep our friends <laughs> there shouldn't be this split that happens but it does i think yeah and i i always hope it's getting easier yeah for girls and i guess i mean if if your son goes through that for boys too they don't want to lose their friends yeah yeah Yeah. did you grow up with a a religious background no i didn't have a religious background at all i you know and whenever whenever people talk about religion i'm really kind of at a loss because it's a huge gap in my my under- I mean, certainly we all, I have, my my background is um, 
is Christian, but so I have these, I have these, you know, Judeo-Christian ethics or morals, principles that I was raised with, but I wasn't in a structured religion. I was, I was lucky. My parents weren't didn't embrace religion a whole lot my, my yeah. mother had a bad experience where she was shamed by a preacher oh my gosh yeah my mother grew up catholic and she was done with all that by the time yeah. i was born my, my yeah. mother my mother is part of the, the family story in a way mm-hmm. my mother was had just had a child and was in, in a hospital room with another woman mm-hmm. and that woman had true crime magazines oh and the, the pre the, the preacher from our church came to visit my mother who just had a baby and didn't uh-huh. say anything but then when she was in church the next time he from the pulpit said i was visiting a woman who just had a baby and she was reading filthy true climb See, now i'd want to talk to that lady <laughs> <laughs> yeah and when we yeah. th- that really uh, ended sort of like a lot of religion in her in her in her house but growing up in the small See why, town that's very judgmental yeah yeah, yeah. growing yeah. up in the small town though i got involved it's with a true crime magazines <laughs> filthy <laughs> magazines, but there was a religion. There was a church in town that spoke in tongues and mm-hmm. did faith healing and that oh, kind wow. of thing. And my friend went there, mm-hmm. and I tagged along for a while and got to see sort of uh, front row this uh, leader who has, you know, a special relationship with God that you have mm-hmm. to give him extra respect for and stuff. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, that's always spooky. been. There's a there's sort of a haunted quality for of the you know the deeply religious the deep belief kind of set that. It always feels too much. It's like a almost like, and I don't. I feel like this will offend people, but it's sort of a death culture to me. Yeah. Like there's this um, fascination with what happens in the afterlife and God, and you're living for death. Yeah. You yeah. know, which has never appealed to me. <laughs> well, it's also strangely living for death has never appealed to me. Also, sort of a slave <laughs> culture kind of thing yeah. of uh, the you higher know, power. Yeah, don't yeah. nothing. What happens here doesn't matter. Yeah. Don't you shouldn't be worrying about that. Yeah. It's your soul in the afterworld. You should really be. Yeah, and about. as a yoga teacher too. I mean, I you work yoga into the uh, into the book as well. Yeah. Can you remember the yoga scenes that are that are in there? Yeah, there are a few. <laughs> well, you know, my first experience with yoga was in the 70s, and my mom took yoga at a, at like in a church basement. Um, and she always likes to say, it was taught by this very beautiful man. It's like the first time she <laughs> saw all the time. He had this long black hair that he tied back. He's just this beautiful man. So I just imagine this beautiful man walking around teaching yoga. And um, my mother would do yoga at home. So she she would come back to the apartment and and I would do I would do yoga with her. So she I don't know. And she stopped for a long time. So she never got really into yoga. She started doing yoga again recently. But she taught me the, the yoga nidra when I was really small. I don't think she would even know what that means now. But it's when you teach your body how to relax. Uh-huh. So limb by limb by limb you learn how to relax your whole body um so it's really good for sleeping and uh stress 70s yoga was much different so not a ton of people were doing yoga like they are now um so then it was kind it's kind of a cue in the book that oh they're experimenting with re with uh perceptions of reality in various ways in the book so through drugs there's some lsd scenes in the book uh-huh. There's some yoga scenes in the book. <laughs> Any research on the on the drug scenes? <laughs> no, that's something I can't talk about. <laughs> you remember the 90s. <laughs> it's 
something I can't talk about. No. Um, I just read a lot about what it does to the brain. <laughs> Did a lot of research for that stuff. of your mother uh, mm. i've always uh, uh sort of imagined you know that you grew up you must have grown up in a very uh, literary home not just your mother mm. but your your sister as well uh, yeah as my a sister's a writer kate han kate she's written for salon and, yeah uh, yeah she uh she often has humor pieces in mcsweeney's she's really funny so she was a lot of fun to grow up with we used to laugh all the time did, did she know she was a writer before you i think she did i think she knew way before yeah so I, my mother's a writer. My mother writes children's books. Um, she writes uh, under the name Mary Downing Hahn. Um, my sister Kate is a writer. How long has your mother written? How long has she been published? She had her first book come out in the 70s, like 1978 or maybe earlier, maybe 76. The Sarah Summer was her first book. And she had the same editor for her whole career. Wow. Yeah, which is so unusual now. It's unheard of in different times. What's the, the, the flavor of her writing? She writes social dramas, but um, she's really the most well-known for her ghost stories. So, yeah, so she's a spooky writer. <laughs> <laughs> she's spooky, too, but you never guess it. She's so nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> your your book it's it sort of uh, because it's talking about uh, about folk ballads as well. Uh-huh. It's sort of like uh, it it goes around the edges of supernatural uh, phenomenon in uh-huh. a way. Was, was was that a did you you must have made a decision at some point whether to indulge further in that or to or to stay away? How did that? I wanted the reader to feel like that could have maybe that could have happened. Like how when somebody tells you about a ghost or if they've seen a ghost or yeah. um, you think, oh, maybe ghosts are real. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so and there's a scene in the novel we talked about where Alice switches bodies with Mr. Wick. And there are a bunch of little things like that throughout the book. And I, I kind of wanted to recreate that feeling where you think maybe maybe there is such a thing. Because I, I don't I used to really think there was a sort of a. Um, Maybe ghosts, yeah, that that could be a real thing. But now I'm the older I get, the less likely I am. I still haven't seen one. I'm still like yeah. waiting to see one. I haven't seen one yet. So yeah. I I uh, was just reading about a a house that they can't sell because a murder took place in it. Oh and, yeah, uh, I mean, that made me wonder how deep people's you know belief in ghosts. We're very really go. yeah. We are we we are very um superstitious. Yeah, very superstitious still about things like that. I'm not sure I'd want to live in a house where someone got murdered. And I'm not I'm not someone who really believes in anything. You know, I don't believe really in bad energy. I don't know what that is. <laughs> I live in California. <laughs> you know what bad energy is. I know energy all is. about what bad energy is. <laughs> yeah. So I wanted to bring some of that language into the book, too. Uh-huh. I, mean, I could idea. see if you, if you did believe in, in ghosts, uh, you could... Uh, Read your book and 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 uh, you know take those aside yeah. as being part of the, the the true foundation of things that are happening. Yeah, it. of course, I think so. <laughs> but there was something ma- more than some sort of magical element at work. 
There's another interesting thread that comes in, and, and, mm-hmm. and I'll let you not discuss this if you want. But there, it's the 70s, and, and you get into the uh, the theme of the missing in action. Uh, mm. Oh, per- yeah. Sure, I can talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love that element as well. Because, yeah. I mean, that's another, you know, almost ghost story, almost, uh, you know, idea yeah. that... Uh, it was very prevalent then that there could still be, you know, hundreds of people enslaved by the Vietnamese who were, you know, there in purgatory. Right. You right. know, who were just suffering. And then Yel- I didn't realize this, but Yeltsin said in the 80s that that um, some of those people had been moved to Soviet labor camps. Yeah. The 60 Minutes did some sort of some, investigational I think six, piece. And there was a congressman who was actually conned by the mafia, by a mafia guy in the, I think it was like in 1982. He was a conservative... Um, congressman from new york i forget his name but that the con that's in the book is based on that con Uh. this mafia con that was run on where they were like my guy can get these guys out we know where they are you know just keep paying us and he gave them huge sums of money and of course they think they were writing these fake letters from the prisoners the supposed prisoners of war from from their jail cells what could be more ghoulish than uh, <laughs> telling somebody do. their loved ones are still alive and needing and like their if help we can get you out we can get them out but i think that's this that's the secret of the con from what i've read is to offer the person the thing they want the most or the thing that and the thing they think they can't have yeah. and then to offer it to them to build it up in such a way where suddenly it seems like it might be attainable. It is totally ghoulish. It's, it's, it's one of the worst things um, outside of a, it's emotional violence. I mean, it's outside of physical violence. It's probably the worst thing somebody can do to you. Yeah. Yeah. Did you have the story in your, did you have that element in your head before you came to this or, or how did you decide that this would be the, the con that, that Jack Wick was involved with? Well, it's post post Vietnam. So I wanted I wanted something around war, and I didn't quite know what it was. But I knew that he needed he needed to be up to something that was bigger than what he originally presented to to the the kids that got involved with him. So he needed to be working on a plot that was bigger than than that. So he's he's basically he needs them for his sort of his own sort of play to run the con. So that I don't think I didn't know what it, I didn't know exactly what the con would be, but I knew when I when I first read about that mafia con, it was like, oh, that's it, that's the one. Leave it to the mafia <laughs> to run against the United States. <laughs> you know, it yeah. So it was a it was a really big, it was a good good. Uh, you can read about it online. Yeah, yeah. Speaking speaking of the United States, is 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 there a a sort of element of uh, your your thoughts of America in, in this uh, in this story. Is there a social critique somewhere in this story? There is a social critique, but what is it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess uh, somewhere in there, the relationship between the parents and the uh, and and the girls seems to be at the heart, maybe, of, of why they would be looking for a new family. Alice is ashamed of her mother. And yeah, her, her mother's a hoarder. Yeah. Yeah, so she feels like all of her mother's stuff is pushing her out of the house. I guess they don't really have, they don't really have a lot of alternatives. They're not wealthy. They don't come from wealthy families. Um, It's never mentioned what happens to Alice's father. All we know is that Alice's father left when her mother was pregnant. So there's no extra financial support there. And her mother, 
her mother's not doing well enough really they don't they don't have much of anything and molly comes from the most what we call um intact family but she doesn't nobody's ever really talked to molly about what she'll do when she grows up there's one scene where alice ponders why molly doesn't have better plans for herself and she thinks no one's ever considered it because molly's so pretty that they've always sort of just let her be the pretty sweet girl and they never asked her what else she wanted to do there's a certain handicap with yeah. that sort of beauty that, yeah i that, think so that comes along yeah no one ever expected anything necessarily. Yeah, well, I've heard it described like you've you've already gotten an A for being beautiful. Like right. why work what, harder for an A plus? Why would you do what else do you need to do? Yeah, yeah. And then um, Stover's parents are divorced, but his parents both care a lot about what happens to him. Um, they just he's in love with Trina, so yeah. they don't <laughs> they don't have much power compared to that, and he's he's too old to be brought home yeah i think that they i think for molly and alice particularly there's there's a social critique and i think financially just the idea that anytime you don't have money you're more vulnerable so there's an exchange of money that happens at some point in the book where um where he jack wick takes any money they earn so they never have any money they never have any they never have any um authority that way yeah it's so, another way to control people. To yeah, control it's to the take money. their money away. Yeah. yeah, and then the the class differences. So um, the couple that's being conned in the book, the Smiths and and their children, they're they're really wealthy. Um, and I think part of that too came out of living where I live and seeing the economic disparity in Northern Westchester outside of New York City. Yeah, what's what's what is the breakdown there? Like? It's either it seems to me. I mean, there's a very small middle class. Um, there are not many affordable homes. It's a very expensive area. So, and there, there's a lot of wealth. Like there's a lot of sort of what we call, I call it zebra wealth because, <laughs> because I realized at one point that if you take us, there are all these unpaved roads near where we live. And so if someone doesn't pave the road, that means they don't want anyone coming down that road. So on these unpaved roads, it's Martha Stewart lives there close by and um i mean we we told i totally don't have zebra wealth <laughs> but there's this man where does the word zebra come I'll tell, from i can tell you okay there's this man <laughs> and his wife i forget their name but they open their house up every year for this garden tour because they have massive property they have this huge i mean you could build like a whole town here on their property and they 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 collect exotic animals so once alan my husband and i were driving by and i was like oh look they have a striped blanket on that horse and then i was like wait a minute that's a zebra and so i was like back up <laughs> and so whenever we pass they have camels and they have zebra and because where do you go once you've accumulated the house the land the open garden tours that you need like a golf cart for yeah, you yeah. know it's where do you go you, know, it's you buy a zebra yeah, right from, from citizen k <laughs> no. yeah. so there's zebra i call it zebra wealth now like oh they, they're the zebra people they have zebra <laughs> <laughs> so like you have to figure out how to import this animal and how to take how to care for it and in a place that's absolutely not their yeah. natural realm and and get one that really likes being alone 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah get along with other zebra. zebras. Yeah. Because yeah. we're just, well, I mean, if you have zebra wealth, you could probably get a whole bunch to yeah. come over together. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. So there's that. And then there's this sense of, of failed middle class, too. Like the, um, lots of stores that close. Um, lots of places have gone just out of business and under. And then the, the shopping malls that, that just, that are falling apart. Yeah. There's a sense of that too, that the middle class is just, has lost everything. Yeah. So there's this tiny middle class and then there are the people who are really struggling because their jobs are gone too. Yeah. The things that once kept them afloat are just gone. And then there are these like people who, I guess who made their money on Wall Street or however you make zebra wealth. I don't know. <laughs> I've never figured it out. <laughs> Honest labor. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, actually, like I think this man, I think his father was in the on the Lower East Side Mafia. So oh, really? there. That's another way. <laughs> That's another way. But um. But yeah. Well, do you think do you think kids today are just as uh, there would be just as likely to get pulled into cults? Or? I don't know. I would hope not. <laughs> they're, they're more after school programs now. <laughs> people send their kids to you know soccer practice instead of yeah. just letting them we there was a sense when i was growing up we just had this sort of free free roaming you know go into the woods to you just left the house and you didn't come back until nighttime or yeah even yeah. riding riding around my old hometown uh which is much the same in a lot of ways even though the industry has dried up a lot around it um, but there's no longer like groups of kids roaming around. Yeah, like, I, I, getting it's, it's getting a up into spooky almost. It's it's a little strange. I mean, I have mixed feelings about. I think it's great when parents are more involved in their children's lives, as long as the parents are you know <laughs> high functioning. Yeah, yeah, you know, capable. You know, it's a, it's it's like one of those things. Do you want how how much involvement will you have? So the the benefit of roaming around and not having parental supervision is that you you make a lot of you end up making a lot of decisions on your own and you learn how to do that but sometimes the consequences are steep for that too and and things can happen go really wrong um and then the the benefit of having parental supervision or or more organized activity is that maybe you take some of the danger away from the the life, but you lose a little bit of the a little bit of the sense of exploration and discovery. So, and then I think when the when the parents, if you if you're talking about parental parents always being involved, and you know, sometimes I see parents yelling at their children. You know about how they have to perform better, do whatever activity they're taking them to. They have to be better at it, and I don't think that's necessarily any good. So it's probably still all about the quality of parenting when it comes down to it. So I don't know. What What do you think you learned about writing from your from your mother? Well, my mom's a children's book writer, so the uh, action and plotting is a bit different you really move in children's fiction you have you can't sort of stop and um and you can't kind of go off it's more there's a more direct through line and plot and structure and i think like i was saying earlier one of the things i've struggled with as a writer is um learning how to 
move a book and sequence a book. So reading her books has helped me a lot. And she also she also read several drafts of this book and made suggestions. Um, she says that when she started writing, it wasn't her strong point to plot, but I certainly is now. She's an excellent plotter and she's fantastic with structure. Well, this this film is really, or this film, your, your book is... Let's make it a film. <laughs> you can go there too. <laughs> but uh, it, it really, it's... If there's anything that it really shows off, is it shows off a very masterful plotting. Mm-hmm. That uh, it, it, there's a, a lot of different ways it could go. You have, mm-hmm. um, you know, different time time planes that you're dealing with and everything. It's a but lot to do. It's did, a lot. Is, to... Are, are there avenues that you that you went went on that that were major that did end up not being yeah. in the book? Yeah. Um, in the first version of this book, when we first started, when I first started sending it out with my agent to editors, um, it kept getting rejected and it kept getting rejected. And so I pulled it and I, I had the decision then whether I would just scrap it and begin something new or if I would revise it. What sort, of, know, what sort of feedback were you getting? Um, well, there were a lot of, there were a lot of things like letters, like a lot of um, letters back and forth between Mr. Wick and then at that point he had a son so there was a whole other character in the book Paul who I kind of miss but once I took him out the book moved a little <laughs> more freely um, so it was just a different it was I think it was a quieter book in a lot of ways and when we when I pulled it I thought all right I really want this book to be in the world so what do I need to do to kind of get it and I I realized I had to work on the I had to tighten it up so I had to tighten up the plot I had to tighten up the Is it structure. longer it may have been longer it might have been just the same length that I took out and it's a little long for a first novel there is a page length they like you to me oh really yeah What's or that? a word I think it's like two, 240 pages. Uh-huh. You go look at a lot of first novels, they'll be about that. Yeah. So this came in a little above that. Uh-huh. So, um, But yeah, there was a huge revision at one point. So I was like, this isn't going to get published. We were How we were close a lot with different editors. So we looked at things that they said in particular. So the people that the book appealed to who wanted the book, but for whatever, maybe they always have a second reader who reads the book and makes a, a decision. Um, so sometimes the second reader would nix the book right as it was getting towards the publication stuff. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it was very, it's very, it's a long process. It's a pretty draining process. But I decided to just take a step back and revise it, which was hard. So I made it a little more streamlined than it had been before. Yeah. Yeah. So that's probably where the, the sort of tight, tightened plot comes in. Tell me about your agent. My agent is fantastic. <laughs> she's she's really she's really um she's a professional. Um, Jessica Papin at Distill and Goderich. She read the book in one night when I sent her. I sent her the query. She asked me for the man. She asked me for the first thirty pages. I sent her the first thirty pages. She asked for the manuscript. This was in it like ten minutes or something. Uh-huh. And then she read the whole book overnight and she emailed me the next day. Wow. And I had a couple of different people who were really interested. Um, and an, another offer from an agent. So you, you have to kind of wait because it was in the pr- first 
stages of sending the book out when this happened. And I had to wait and see. Then you let the other people know who are interested. I have an offer. And then they, they might move the manuscript up to the top of their list to read to make a different offer if they want it. Some people will say, okay, forget it. Great. I'm glad you have an offer. It's a good book. Good luck. Uh-huh. Um, but Jessica was fantastic. And, uh, you know, I would when I realized it wasn't just going to get published right away, because I don't know anything about the publishing <laughs> process, and then I kept getting these rejections, I was like, what's going on? And she was like, it's okay. You know, you're going to be all right. We're going to get this book published. We still, have these, we still have these people and these people and these people. So I did some, I did some freaking out, and then she would kind of talk me down. So she... She's she's taught me a lot about the publishing world. So I, I know you don't want to talk too much about it, but you do have another book that's, I do. Uh, what's the, you have a title? Your One Brilliant Life. Your One Brilliant Life. Yeah. And uh, have you, have you wrapped up the, the writing of it? Has it been easier to write than the, no, the second book? No, it's not easier to write. <laughs> I, th- I thought it would be, <laughs> but it's like starting a new project. It's just this complete, de- the demands of the book are different. So it has to be structured in a different way. It has to be plotted in a different way I mean everything's new it's like going into a new school each one's a mystery that needs to be solved in a way it's true there's I mean you can only do it so many ways but I I have a friend who's a writer Mike DeCapity who I interviewed a few Mm -hmm. few episodes back and he uh, had thought that you know maybe the way to writing was just to to write a little bit each day and he was going to take a little tablet with him and just, you know, jot down those important thoughts that need to be jotted down. And he did that for about a year and realized he just had a big, you know, uh, pile of papers. Yeah. It wasn't any closer to being a book than no, anything else. No, it's so true. <laughs> yeah, that whole thing about writing every day. I don't, I don't know who started that rumor. Yeah. But some people do it. I've never been a writing every day. What is your discipline towards, towards writing? Well, I get up in the morning and I go to my computer and I... I open what I did the day before. So I, I do a little bit every day, but sometimes I do five pages and sometimes I do one sentence. So, <laughs> so you know, I look at whatever I did the day before and then I think about, you know, I think about how this might, one thing might bump up against next to, next to another thing and what that does. And, and maybe I'll go back to what I did the day before or, or maybe I'll go back to something that, I did a, a month before, but um, but I always make myself sit down and do it, sit down in front of my computer, if I can, like today, obviously, I couldn't, and yesterday, I couldn't. Um, sometimes if I have something big coming up to do, I, I have a hard time writing, so I can't sit down at my, I'd, sitting down at my desk every day doesn't happen, but it, it happens yeah. a lot. I try to, and then I teach at night, usually, so... I've heard uh, recently more writers talk about the uh, 
uh, finding it harder to get into the uh, mindset to writing, uh, finding it harder to keep the discipline mm-hmm. that a writer is, the way the computer is now, and all mm-hmm. the things that are yeah. meant to distract us. You have to us. say, I'm not going to go on Facebook. I'm not yeah. going to check my email. I mean, I check my email. I have my coffee. I check my email, and then I, then I get to writing but for me i kind of realized too that i uh, 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 an important part of the writing is the you know two or three hours where it, it kind of looks like you're not doing it it's doing anything so valuable <laughs> sometimes i'm just listening to music but i'm thinking about sure the story and, and that's the time that seems yeah. at a premium that's hard to get is just that sort of like yeah free-floating thinking time it is i and it happens in the car i drive a lot where i am so it often happens in the car the other day i was listening to a um entrance song (laughs) and I thought oh I know what this new character should be oh I know what she should do and it was just because I liked the song and it had it on my you know and I I was thinking about the book so sometimes that is the biggest thing that can happen and well music music plays a big part in 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 the the singing bone and and Uh I know that you're more than a casual music listener <laughs> as well. That's how we know each other. Uh, well, yeah. from years ago, we were yeah. both sort of circulating around this Philadelphia yeah. music scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell, me, tell me about your relationship with, with, with music. It's a process of discovery. I I really don't know what anybody else is listening to. <laughs> so. when, when did you start listening to music? Who was, who was playing music when you were young? Oh, I mean... We always had albums around our house. I liked the, I loved the Beatles, and I loved Cat Stevens, and Simon and Garfunkel. When I was little, I would just play those albums over and over again. Very lyric heavy and yeah. literate in their own way. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, from a from a young age, I just I I f- could feel like I could get lost in music, and I would draw and listen to music. You know, that was always a big part of my life. And then when I was a teenager, um. I had some friends who were interested in punk rock and um, we'd go into DC and see bands. And then here, when I, when I came to Philadelphia, I immediately sought out some sort of mu- the music people. I was like, where are the music people? So, but it was always a range. I was never interested in just one kind of, one kind of music. I always liked, I could listen to, <laughs> to let's see, I could listen to Flipper, right? Or I could listen to Brian Eno, or I could listen to The Smiths, or I could listen to The Psychedelic Furs. I didn't, and I loved Roxy music too. Like I was, um, I just liked lots of different kinds of sounds, and I still do. It sort of comes to me do. just now as you're talking that, that there's almost two two elements that people are drawn to when they're listening to music. I knew people that uh, got into music and that defined their personality. The mm-hmm. music defined how they dressed and mm-hmm. who their role models were mm-hmm. and all that thing. And I kind of felt like I was never, I was never somebody who became a punk, even though I listened to tons of punk music. Yeah, for me, it was it more was about. Never about that it was more me. about studying people it was more about yeah. absorbing what yeah. people are thinking more across the board or and it something. was all it was sort of about where can this take me like where can this song where does this song take me and it had to have some sort of emotional or um it had to have an impact whatever it was and and the music that often had an impact wasn't the music that was on the radio now it might be i don't know but the more unusual sound was at that time not on the radio. Yeah. What are you right? listening to these days? Well, I was just listening to the entrance band. <laughs> <laughs> I go back and forth. Like 
lately i've i've been watching um i've been watching the americans do you uh, watch that no. and it's set in the early 80s and i've had this kind of like they played that album upstairs at eric's that uh, yaz album yeah. do you remember that absolutely and i was like this is actually really good <laughs> and so i went back and listened to some yaz songs and then uh so i've had this kind of craving for early 80s new wave and i'm i'm i've been listening to going back and listening to um new order and uh, just different stuff. <laughs> are, fun. You, are you going to be writing about the 80s at some point? You know what I was thinking? I, I was like, well, the 80s were a really interesting time. And there's a lot going on that maybe I'll have some, you know, I could do decade by decade. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for coming out. And, Thank uh, you. Best of luck with, with this book and uh, the many yes. more. Thank you. It was such a pleasure talking to you. <laughs> One, two, three, four. That's it for our show. Thanks to Beth for coming in and bringing such a delightful conversation. Again, her book is The Singing Bone, published by Reagan Arts. Once again, we'll be back uh, hosting double features at Andrew's Video Vault at the Rotunda on July 14th. Uh, join us for White Comanche and Clear Cut. You can also join me at the class, The Big Tent, Political Campaigns on Film. I'll be teaching that in July at Fleischer Arts. You can find out more at Fleischer.org. Catch past episodes of the Fun to Know podcast at SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Catch me spinning jazz Mondays at 11 a.m. EST on WPRB Princeton. Read my film reviews at Falker.com and check back for more Fun to Know. We're free, I tell you. So wake up. It's time.